This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, everyone. I am so honored today to be joined by Tony Smith-Thompson. Tony made headlines back in 2002 when, as a player at Manhattanville College, as a basketball player, she protested during the national anthem. Now, certainly this protest has shades of the kind of renaissance of athletic activism that we're seeing today. So when the NFL passed their new stupid policy this past week, I thought of no one better to speak with about their opinions on this and the history of athletic activism, particularly by women um, and Black women at that. So, Tony, welcome to Burn It All Down. Thanks so much. It is such an honor to be on the podcast with you. I'm very excited. This ruling this past week, the NFL made this ruling uh, an attempt to curtail peaceful protests of the players such as Kaepernick, Eric Reed, um, and other players who may want to and have before protested during the national anthem. When you heard of this policy, what did you think? What did I think when I heard of this policy? Um, So I actually posted some comments and response on social media because the, um, for me, this policy rang of the same brand of compromise that I actually rejected when I was protesting uh, during the 2002-2003 season. Uh, There was quite a bit of disagreement on my team. And when we tried to talk it out or reach some kind of agreement, um, one of the recommendations or one of the um, offers for compromise from teammates was that I stay in the locker room. And I rejected that because my protest was not to not be part of my team. My protest was about the policies and practices of our country. Um, And I didn't think, as the team had to participate in this forced patriotism, that in order for me to show that I had issues that I wanted to raise in regards to our country's policies and practices, that I also needed to sit out being part of my team. Um, And essentially, that's what this policy does. It forces players to choose between their team and their values. um, And it is misguided at the least, racist at the worst. um, And, you know, another tired attempt to silence Black players. Yeah, totally. And I I really appreciate this kind of false compromise that you highlighted, this way that is this idea that, oh, yeah, oh, this is the middle ground when like no players were even consulted and it's not a compromise, more so erasure. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you take us through the decision you made to protest and, and what led you to that and and uh, how you chose to enact your protest? Sure. The decision to protest, um, I'd say, was a long time in the making Um, just because as a black woman in the United States and as a light skinned black woman at that, um, I have 
grown up kind of with a front seat to um, being black in America. And I've also in many ways had a front seat to what it means to be white in America and white passing. And um, so a lot of that shaped me going into college. But then I was a sociology major. And, you know, as it should, my courses opened my eyes to like the, the systemic workings that kind of shape what you know to be everyday experiences, but you don't know why things are unfair. You don't know why you feel like the country is kind of misguided and why we're not equal. And then you learn actually about these like intricate inner workings that produce the inequalities. Um, So I was very much in that place um, leading up to my senior year. And I was going through other transformations as well. Um, So I had changed my diet. I had become a vegan that year. I was no longer um, drinking alcohol or really participating in a lot of the kind of social activities um, that are common in college. And so I was really kind of going through this cleanse and trying to make sense of what it means to be Black in America, what it means to sort of live in integrity um, and kind of live in a way that would further justice the way I saw. And, um, that all led to a conversation. It was one conversation with um, my then boyfriend that highlighted this practice. Um, and this was a practice that Mm. I didn't have to participate in, um, in grade school. I went to schools where we didn't recite the pledge. So college was really the first time that I was made to participate in this kind of display. And, um, through this conversation highlighted for me, what it meant that I was participating in this practice. Before then, it really just was kind of a go with the flow, um, get through it, you know, during the national anthem. It wasn't on on my team and um, other teams from what I witnessed. The national anthem was not a time for like deep patriotism. It was a time to kind of whisper under your breath, crack jokes, kind of like poke the person in front of you, mm-hmm. go through your like, Um, last minute kind of game plans, right? Like all this stuff is going through your head during the national anthem and among the team. This is not like a sacred moment for most people um, as I've experienced. And so um, once I distinguish that not only does this practice not hold any meaning for me to participate in, it actually holds significant meaning that I'm participating in it. Um, And it actually is furthering a narrative about this country's dominance, about its treatment of black and brown people, um, about its kind of um, inclination toward war and oppression that uh, I was no longer willing to co-sign or participate in. And it, at that point, would have been more painful for me to continue participating in the anthem than to not participate and um, deal with the backlash that came from it. Yeah. So what was the reaction um, when you, when you did your protest? The reaction to my protest. So there actually was not um, much of a response to me directly for a number of games. Uh, and I re- the first person I remember saying anything to me um on my team, at my school, I mean, anybody, was the president of Manhattanville College. He came to me and he said, if anybody gives you a problem, come to me. And Mm. I remember saying something like, "Um, okay, I mean, what are you talking about? You know, I didn't even know that he was talking about my protest. Um, And then I said, oh, well, it's fine. No one has said anything to me. Um, But then after that, I learned that some parents of teammates were threatening to go to the NCAA. They had voted. Of your teammates? Of my teammates, yeah, parents of my teammates. Oh, wow. Um, so there had been some grumblings that I wasn't aware of. Mm. That's, um, 
So could you feel the tension in your team? Um, after it became known and discussed on the team that people were aware I was pro- that I was protesting, yeah, then the tension was very palpable. Um, but I don't remember feeling any tension until the moment I knew that people were upset. I don't know if people had noticed and not said anything. I really don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And I hadn't told anyone that I was planning to protest. Um, I actually hadn't even told my family and they used to drive up from New York city. Um, But you know, they're all educators. So they would get to the game like as fast as they could, but they would get there a little late every game. So they always missed the anthem and they didn't even know until all of this hit the fan. Um, And so it really, there was no discussion until that moment that it kind of just exploded on our team. Um, And it turned into this uh, team meeting where we all ended up having to agree to disagree because there was no compromise because I was not willing to stay in the locker room. I was not willing to discontinue the protest. There may have been other suggestions. um, Because as you know, my protest was that I would stand, but I would turn about face to the flag. Um, And, you know, at the time, as I thought through how to protest, um, I had decided to not exit the court for reasons that I stated already. Um, and I had decided not to sit down because I felt like that would very visibly separate me from my team. Um, and I actually thought at the time that the least disrespectful way to protest would be to turn the other way, um, which seems a little uh, silly now because of the response. I mean, and even um, the other NFL player taking a knee and raising a fist and linking arms, like I feel like turning the other way is actually symbolically much more confrontational. Um, so it's a little funny to kind of see how these protests have played out in comparison. But d- did you feel like similar to today that no matter what you did, it wasn't going to be acceptable and the way that like then it becomes about disrespecting the flag or the country or the troops were there a way that rhetorically tried to uh, mis- misinterpret or uh assign disrespect to your protest in particular Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the new wave of protest has certainly crystallized for me that no matter what I did, it wouldn't have made a difference. I don't think I had all of that then, um, but I received tons of hate mail and um, my protest was talked about, I think, on every single news outlet and local papers, national papers, international papers. So with all of these think pieces. Um, And so I think the... The responses were have been were very similar to the responses we see now um, about you know the protests not being patriotic um, that if you don't like it you should leave mm-hmm. um, you don't deserve to be enrolled in college you should have to be penalized you should have your scholarship taken from you I mean all of these different um, arguments so I don't think the public response would have been any different if my protest, if the display of my protest had been different. What I think was much different for me watching the current protest play out is because this was pre-social media, I was much more limited in the ways that I was able to get my message mm-hmm. out. Um, and actually like to think that it was possible that my protest could have sparked a movement for other players wasn't even fathomable. There, it was, there was not even a thought in my mind that the goal was to get other people to right. participate with me because there was just no mechanism to do that. Um, and I originally didn't even plan to hold a press conference or release a statement. Um, I did so after teammates of mine spoke to the media 
and the kind of the story was getting far away from what the what my protest actually was about. So it was only then that I did participate in a press conference on campus and I did release a statement. And even then, though, you know, these small sound bites were really the only opportunities I had to convey why I was protesting. And I think because the protest was very much during the post 9-11 period, it was really just one year after 9-11 when my protest started, um, that although I was very much against the war and I very much connected the war to um, the country's domestic policies and practices that perpetuate oppression and discrimination. Um, My protest very much got labeled as an anti-war protest. And that was, um, I knew that that would be hard to counter and not necessarily worth it to try to counter because that was such the moment that our country was in. Um, But it was really important to me, and I did some interviews afterward, it was really important to me that my protest was not only seen as an anti-war protest. It wasn't an anti-war protest in the sense that I just wanted to be against the war. It was an anti-war protest in the sense that the war was kind of emblematic of the ways that, you know, the country... um, perpetuates these practices domestically, sort of as a training ground for then what they, you know, what it does internationally. And, um, and that ultimately, right, like the, the, um, the kind of punish and kill um, default that is America is always handed out more harshly on black and brown communities. Um, and that was important to me, that people were able to connect it to and not just hold my protest as an anti-war protest. So in this current moment, you know, I think we see we've seen um, this kind of effect spread, and it's not just in an NFL. Certainly, the WNBA has been leaders on this front. A lot of uh, female athletes have been at the forefront of the current kind of wave of athletic activism. Not like they haven't been there before, but I'm hopeful at least that in this moment they're definitely getting more recognition than. Um, a long history of black women doing athletic activism prior to this moment. But the other thing I think about is uh, the enormous amount of risk to your livelihood that it takes to take a stand like this. And the new policy, the new anthem policy, which seeks to temper dissent, it it feels like it might be very successful. Um, Did, did you think about the risks or the consequences and if you did, how did you push yourself past that in order to continue to protest? I definitely thought about consequences on some level. Um, not to minimize youthfulness, but I really do think that there there is such power in the college age or just like that period where you're a young person where I mm. do think my appreciation for consequences is different than it is now. It was different than it is now. And so I think you have this powerful moment as a young person where you are at sort of your peak critical thinking um, and you're sort of at your, you're still growing in your appreciation for consequences. Uh, And not in a bad way, but just like the possibility of um, getting arrested or the possibility of being, um, met with bodily harm. My relationship to those things was just different then than it is now as a adult with a family and children and a career. Um, you know, you just have different things at stake, which I think is, is that's nothing to 
minimize when we're talking about professional athletes. Um, and there's nothing to minimize when we're talking about black women and black women athletes um, who've just historically, right. you know, had a ton at stake. Um, and they're like our at stakeness has always looked very different from men. Um, so I think from that, from that sense, I did, I did know that there could be consequences and I had no idea what they could be. I mean, luckily for me, I think because I played division three basketball, um, my protest was not silenced in the way that it would have likely been playing in a division one school. Um, in fact, there was another player, um, Deidre Chapman, who protested for a game and she played for Division One school, I want to say University of Virginia. Um, and that protest stopped after one game and the school released a statement basically saying that, you know, the protest was not intended to draw attention away from the program or to um, disrespect the program in any way. And I think because I wasn't in school on an athletic scholarship, um, that allowed me to continue the protest in a way that would not have been possible at another school. Um, and, and had my protest stopped after one game, no one would have ever known about it. Um, and so, you know, so there was that part of the consequences. And then, you know, in terms of my physical safety, probably I didn't fully appreciate what all of the ways that consequences could show up. You know, I probably didn't anticipate getting death threats. I didn't anticipate that my story would go international. I didn't anticipate that someone would trespass onto campus and walk onto the court to put a flag in my face and to um, intimidate me. Um, And I didn't expect to be ostracized. You know, like there are all all of these things that you can't anticipate or plan for, particularly at a small school where you're not visible. Um, but, But I ultimately think I knew that as a young person growing into my activism and growing into my identity, the cost of not protesting was too great for me. And um, if I had distinguished that this anthem was something that I disagreed with, fundamentally disagreed with, and I continued to participate because I was scared, um, then it would, I didn't have the courage to seek justice in the ways that I said I stood for. Uh, And that was really important to me to kind of prove for myself that I could actually be the activist that I said this country needed in order to be more just. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I, I really appreciate what you say about growing into your activism. I work with a lot of, you know, college students, a lot of college athletes who um, I imagine similar to you and even I think Tommy Smith and John Carlo as well, who are in a college space and reading a lot of things and, and growing in many ways. And I think they're looking um looking for ways to express some of the things they're learning and how they're growing into their activism. And if you could, what would you say to college athletes or non-athletes who are, who are thinking about um, and identifying more injustices and starting to understand the effects of systemic racism and inequality and, and want to express that in some way? Uh, what words of encouragement might you leave them? That's a good question. Um, I actually have, I through my job at the New York Civil Liberties Union, I do work with um, students, both directly and also um, through advocacy. And I um, 
was involved in monitoring the March for Our Lives um, student walkouts that happened after Parkland and supporting students who were walking out of school, um, in addition to advocating for students um, post Kaepernick's protest who started taking a knee. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think it's twofold. Um, one, there's work to be done with adults who work with students um, to have them reconsider the knee-jerk reactions to punish dissent and to punish critical thinking. Um, I think getting, getting adults to be adult allies and to see that student athletes or students who are beginning to think more critically about issues and beginning to weave together their personal experiences with actual policies and practices um, is part of learning, right? Just like we say sports is not separate from society, it is society. The same is true for students, right? And so having adults be willing to fold into students learning what they're experiencing rather than punishing dissent and basically mandating that students only learn certain content and only learn in certain ways, um, I think in order for us to develop into an actual healthy, robust democracy, um, we need to allow that to happen. And then for students, um, something I've been asked by students um, time and time again is how do you keep going even when it looks like you're not going to win? And very much so for me, the when I protested, I didn't have a campaign plan. I didn't even have a grounded sense of all of the policy reform agendas that should be on the table to get us to, you know, the promised land. I didn't have all that information. I just knew this isn't right. Um, there's something really wrong about the messaging of this practice. There's something really wrong about um, our notion of equality and equity in this country. There's something really broken. Um, and that was enough for me to make a different choice. And so I think for students, telling them that it's okay not to have all the answers, and actually we shouldn't prescribe to have all the answers, but just to take the next step. You know, none of us are going to bring about revolutionary change overnight. We're not likely. Um, and we're likely not going to do it alone. Um, but understanding that we are all part of... Uh, an arc is is really powerful, you know, to know that my protest then did not was not the beginning of a movement. Um, and after my protest, I graduated and kind of, for all intents and purposes, kind of fell into obscurity in, in, as far as the public discourse is concerned. But to have these protests resurface now and to have me reincorporated into the narrative of athlete protests, just like I was incorporated into the narrative in 2003 and be kind of like um, connected to the lineage of Muhammad Ali and Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Mahmoud Abdul Rauf um, is really humbling and powerful. And for students to be able to see that any one of us are connected to that, I mean, we all are connected to that, right? But that any any single action can contribute to that arc um, and that no singular act rests on its own, but that it's um, influenced by what has come before and will influence what is to come, I think is really powerful to know that each one of us is a part of that, right? And all of our energies are connected that way. Um, and finally, that the, 
that the pursuit of justice is just as important as getting there. Um, None of us know what justice will look like when we get there and when it will come and how long it will be. Um, That the work really needs to be rooted in a deep love for the, the work along the way and a deep love for building with people and connecting with people who have the same values and have the same vision for the future. Um, and like the, the most rewarding experiences I've had have just been in the relationships with people that I've been able to build and with, with no promise that we will be successful. Right. But like part of the success is just that we're doing the work. Mm. Well, there you have it. Wise and powerful words from Tony Smith Thompson. Tony, thank you so much for joining the pod. Thank you so much for this podcast. Um, if I can just say, as I listen to and participate in the discussions about athlete activism, um, women are not included nearly enough in the narrative. And hearing you on a podcast recently talk about Rose Robinson was completely transformative for me. Um, and just understanding, like, as we're talking about athlete activism, when when the stories of women, particularly Black women, are not included in the narrative, I think it's important to remember that it's not because we aren't there, um, that right. basically every movement for social justice in this country's history, Black women have been on the front lines. And so the question is not where were Black women, or the question is not why weren't they there. The question is, they were there, how are we telling this story in a way that is not encompassing Black women, right? Mm-hmm. Where is the gap? The story is in the gap of this story. Um, and I so appreciated your interview because you kind of blew open for me that gap um, mm-hmm. and answered some of those questions about how did Black women show up? Kind of like, wh- what did their activism look like? What did they have at stake? And what? how did they pay? Um, and even how did they pay in ways that was never even recognized? Right, precisely. Yeah, I'm so appreciative of your work. Thank you so much. Such an honor. Thank you.